Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. All of us have heard or used the term mansplaining. It's that thing that happens when a man explains something to you that he assumes you don't know, when maybe you do know what you're talking about because of your own lived experience or your professional expertise. And these interactions reveal that this man thinks that instead of being your peer, he is in the role of maybe your dad or your teacher or your boss or your ecclesiastical leader. The author Rebecca Solnit published an essay online in 2008 called Men Explain Things to Me, which went viral, and it's become a touchstone for feminist thinkers and for everyday women, and it now appears on many essential reading lists, which is why we're discussing it today. Uh, This essay is also famous because it inspired the coining of the term mansplain, although the essay doesn't actually say that word, and Solnit herself says she doesn't use it. And Solnit says she has mixed feelings about the word, and I do too. But before we talk more about the word mansplain and about this essay, Men Explain Things to Me, and some other essays in Solnit's anthology, I want to welcome back to the podcast Malia Morris. Hi, Malia. Hi, Amy. It's so good to have you back, Malia. Um, Listeners will remember Malia from our very first episode of the whole podcast, The Chalice and the Blade. So we're super, super excited to have you here. And I'm hoping we can start out by having you just review a little bit about yourself, maybe tell some new details that you didn't share last time, or just help us get to know you a bit, Malia. Well, I'm so excited to be back. Uh, So my name is Malia Morris, and I am a wife and a mother and a voice teacher and a performer. And I'm also, I don't know, a baby feminist is maybe what I would call call myself. Um, This is of interest to me just because of the way that I grew up. I did not grow up with a a father in my life. I had a stepdad, uh, but I didn't really have that kind of relationship. So in some ways, I feel like I, I grew up with kind of a periphery view of patriarchy where like it, it came into my life at different moments and at different times. So I feel like in some ways it didn't impact me. And then in other ways it did because the system in which I was you know dating and interacting with people was very much patriarchal. But I had, you know, I struggled with it because I didn't quite understand maybe this like deference. And and even still, like I, I still feel like there's times where I catch myself where I don't have maybe the preferred cultural deference to certain patriarchal things just because it just wasn't as much of a presence, I feel like, in my my personal family. So that would be maybe something about me that may be of interest to to people that know that just the way that I kind of perceive men and and women relationships are just a little bit different. But essentially, uh, I'm super interested in all things patriarchy, and um, that's why I love this podcast. Mm, awesome. I actually, I don't think we had ever talked about that, like, in that way before, that you didn't, so you're saying you didn't necessarily see, like, a patriarchal marriage modeled for you, for example. I, I didn't. I mean, I think that, you know, I had a relationship with my stepdad. I obviously did. But because I didn't have like a central dad figure, I never really had that like, that maybe like, I don't know, feeling as if like I had to listen to one male figure because I had Mm. many male figures in my life. Mm. Like I had my grandfather who was like a father figure. I had my stepdad who was like a father figure. I had uncles who were like father figures. So it kind of felt like my relationships with them were a little bit less structured. And so therefore, like I didn't have 
you know, maybe also to a detriment, I didn't really have that like dad relationship of like someone that you could go to and ask advice to or – and so I think that's why like later on in the decisions that I made in my life, I really wanted to have a partner for my future children that would be a really strong, um, you know, father figure to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not – and the funny thing is like not in um, any of the quote-unquote patriarchal ways. My husband's always like, don't talk about me online, but I'm talking about <laughs> him online. Um, but, but you like – he is like the silent giant. Like he is mm-hmm. so strong, but in a not allowed way at all. And so I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that really attracted me to him. And that one of the things I love watching him parent because I'm like the far more passionate, like Polynesian parent. And he is the very like quiet, like, okay, let's bring things down. Um, <laughs> so where I'm not even talking about like gender, like a man does this and a woman does that. I just mean like a really strong father for them. And so it, it's just interesting, I think, sometimes because they're in relationships with people, I'll, I'll hear them say like, well, you know, he's the patriarch. He's the dad. We listen to them. And that always is just really a per- perplexing comment to me because I, I feel like it's so uneven. I don't know. Like I, I just have never had that like, oh, we have to – like the dad figure. Like we come together and he tells us – you know, so mm-hmm. I, I don't have disrespect for it, but hmm. – I think that's so interesting and really relevant – to know like that what what you're bringing to the text right these are the things that totally inform the way we read things and the way we interpret interactions and so interesting to get to know yeah what's what's informing the whole way another person sees the world right yeah like all of the like <laughs> divergent things that are running through my brain yeah for sure <laughs> that's great well thank you okay the next step is to get to know the author of the text so that's rebecca solnit and malia will you tell us a little bit about her yes rebecca solnit was born in bridgeport connecticut in 1961 to a jewish father and irish catholic mother when she was 5 years old her family moved to nevado california where she grew up She said of her childhood, I was a battered little kid. I grew up in a really violent house where everything feminine and female and my gender was hated. She enrolled in an alternative junior high in the public school system that took her through the 10th grade. And after that, she passed the general education development tests and skipped high school altogether. She enrolled in junior college. And then when she was 17, she went to study in Paris. She returned to California to finish her college education at San Francisco State University and then received a master's degree in journalism from the University of California, Berkeley in 1984. She has been an independent writer since 1988 and has written many, many books and essays, including a memoir in 2020 entitled Recollections of My Non-Existence and has won several prestigious writing awards. Great. Thank you. Okay, well, let's dive into these essays. So the version that Malia and I read is Men Explain Things to Me as kind of the title of an anthology. So that's the the title essay is the main essay in the book, but then there were a few essays after that. But we'll start with that, that main title essay from which the title of the book is derived. And Solnit starts out that essay with a story. So let's just start there. She talks about attending a party with her friend Sally when she was about 40 years old at this cabin that was really a mansion in Aspen that was, you know, like decorated with Ralph Lauren cabin style and owned by a wealthy older man. And she says the whole crowd at the party was 
older than she was and wealthy. And as Rebecca Solnit and her friend Sally were preparing to leave the party, the host found them and said to her, no, 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 stay a little longer so I can talk to you. And he said, so I hear you've written a couple of books. And she replied that she had written several. And I'll just read the rest of the interaction. Quote, he said, in the way you encourage your friend's seven-year-old to describe flute practice, and what are they about? They were actually about quite a few different things, the six or seven out by then. But I began to speak only of the most recent on that summer day in 2003, River of Shadows, Edward Mewbridge and the Technological Wild West, my book on the annihilation of space and time and the industrialization of everyday life. He cut me off soon after I mentioned Mewbridge. And have you heard about the very important Mewbridge book that came out this year? So caught up was I in my assigned role as ingenue that I was perfectly willing to entertain the possibility that another book on the same subject had come out simultaneously and I'd somehow missed it. He was already telling me about the very important book with that smug look I know so well in a man holding forth eyes fixed on the fuzzy far horizon of his own authority. Here, let me just say that my life is well sprinkled with lovely men, with a long succession of editors who have, since I was young, listened and encouraged and published me, with my infinitely generous younger brother, with splendid friends of whom it could be said, like the clerk in the Canterbury Tales, gladly would he learn and gladly teach. Still, there are these other men too, so, Mr. Very Important was going on smugly about this book I should have known when Sally interrupted him to say, that's her book, or tried to interrupt him anyway, but he just continued on his way. She had to say, that's her book, three or four times before he finally took it in. And then, as if in a 19th century novel, he went ashen. That I was indeed the author of the very important book it turned out he hadn't read, just read about in the New York Times book review a few months earlier, so confused the neat categories into which his world was sorted that he was stunned speechless for a moment before he began holding forth again. Being women, we were politely out of earshot before we started laughing, and we've never really stopped. End quote. Okay, so that's the that's the meat of the essay. This it's kind of formed around this event that happened in this conversation. So Malia, what are your thoughts on that? So it makes me think of an experience that I had recently with someone in an in an interview type forum where this man, a great, a great man, we were having this discussion in our field and the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion came up. And as a really passionate ally to this cause, he spoke very passionately about it for a really long time, a really, really long time. And I think in the course of this conversation, it, f it failed to dawn on him that he was talking to a woman of color. So mm -hmm. I kept trying to include him into this by saying, yes, in my experience with this, this has been my experience. And he kept just kind of missing it. And whether that was due just to like his personality or due to like the type of format that it was in, I'm not really sure. But over the course of this discussion, I got increasingly frustrated. And I couldn't understand why because nothing bad was happening. He was smiling. Mm -hmm. I was smiling. There was nothing bad happening. He wasn't saying anything bad. 
he wasn't being disrespectful to me. It was just, I felt this kind of growing unease in me and I couldn't figure it out. And it, it wasn't until later that after the interview was over that I went and I talked to uh, someone who was present, who, who saw it. And he's actually a man. And I said, I had a really uncomfortable experience with this. I can't quite explain why I felt really uncomfortable with it. And through the course of this conversation really came to the awareness that it was because of that. It was sort of this intersectionality of feeling like I'm a woman and I don't want to come off as assertive. I don't want to come off as disrespectful, especially because this person is in a position of power and prominence and prestige. And so I didn't want to come off as disrespectful. And then on the other side, this intersectionality of like, how many times have I sat through these discussions of people telling me what it's like to be a person of color? Mm. And and that that just complete intersectionality of it and how it kept me feeling like I couldn't say anything because I didn't want to be disrespectful and I still don't want to be disrespectful to this person. I think this person is a great person. It was just in this instance, it was another example of me as like a super assertive woman. I, I mean, you know me, Amy, like mm-hmm. I, I don't have problems telling Mm -hmm. men or women when I think that they're off the mark. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, whether it was the format or the person, and I really do think because of his position, I just felt like I, I couldn't, I couldn't say anything. And that Mm -hmm. angered me later. It Mm -hmm. angered me that I didn't say anything because it goes against me as a person and what I, I do generally. And so it showed to me just like the power of these situations and these dynamics and, and power differentials and how they really do impact women. Mm-hmm. So when you asked this guy afterwards for like an outside opinion, what did he say? I think, did he validate what you had perceived or was he like, oh, I didn't really notice that? No, he was he was so generous because he felt it too. Mm-hmm. And he said, I didn't want to say anything to you because I didn't want to feel like I was trying to push on you what my perception was. Mm-hmm. But when I when I said it to him, he said, that was my feeling. That was um, my, my friend is a person of color as well. So yeah, it was just kind of this weird – so it's like this duality, right, of like having this experience with a man in power and then also having like another man validate my feelings. So I think this is where like this topic becomes sticky because, and which we're going to talk about later, but like where this becomes like a sticky thing of like understanding intent and power differentials and how this happens to both men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, and I'll, yes, we are going to get into that more, but I want to share one more story if that's okay, and then hear what you think about it and if you can relate. But the the story that comes to my mind too, just to add to this is that scene in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. And she talks about that when she was a little bit younger, she was writing for the New York Times and she was featuring a bunch of small businesses for an article she was writing, just businesses in Manhattan. And so she'd made an appointment with the owner of a boutique and she was there at his store waiting at the agreed upon time. And a few minutes late, kind of later than their appointment, this owner of the store, who was happened to be a white man, came rushing into the store. And when she greeted him, he just kind of rushed past her and he said, oh, I don't have time right now. I have an interview with the New York Times. And I should have mentioned at the beginning, Isabel Wil- Wilkerson is black. And so this is a black woman with a white 
man. And she said, so when he rushed back or rushed past her and said, I have an interview with the New York Times, she said, yeah, I, I know. I'm the Times writer. I'm Isabel Wilkerson. And he straight up just didn't believe her. He did not believe that she was the New York Times reporter. And they had a conversation face to face, like in person, where she was trying to convince him that she was the one that he had been communicating with to make the appointment. And he just wouldn't believe her. Like Solnit said that he, that it defied the categories that he had in his mind because she was a black woman. And that is just not what a New York Times reporter looks like, apparently. So it, that scene when I read that in the book was so infuriating to read and to imagine what that would have felt like. And I mean, it, it's, again, it, it um, echoes the experience that we talked about on our episode on on uh, double jeopardy to be black and female, that that intersection of sexism and racism that just creates this phenomenon that I I hear from my, you know, women of color, from my friends like you, Malia, of just like not being listened to. And it makes it so much worse. How does that strike you? Did you, I don't remember if you've read the book. I, I don't need to ask no, that. No, but after, <laughs> after we talked about it, I added it to my Audible. So it's on my Audible, just waiting oh, to be listened to. So good. Uh, you know, it's interesting because my first gut reaction in hearing that is just thinking of all the people who are just going to discredit that and say, mm. like, it always is about race. It's always about race with people. And I guess the thing is, is until you experience the repeated normality of something like that, you don't really understand what that's like. I'm mixed race. So I'm in this weird kind of mixed world where I'm not quite brown enough and I'm not quite white enough. So depending on the environment, like I'm white passing, depending on the environment, I'm not white enough. So I get kind of, you know, everybody in this racial structure faces different types of racism. And so that's kind of the one as a mixed person that I experience. But these kind of things are just so common <laughs> that mm -hmm. you almost like don't – it's so common that like you almost don't pay attention to it. Like I'll give you an example. I had my daughter when I was 25. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, which is a pretty young age there, I feel like demographically, for women to have um, children. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you how many times I was asked if I was the nanny. And I thought, like, maybe this is just an isolated incident of, like, the area and the demographic. But then as I had my other child all across the country, I have been asked if I'm the nanny. It's happened so mm. many times that I just don't even think – I like, I just – it doesn't even – I don't even note it anymore, mm. right? So it's kind of these small – some people would call them a microaggression, whatever the word you want to use from. But it, these things just happen and they just kind of build up over time to the point that, mm. like – there's so, so, such a part of common life that sometimes we don't even sit and think with them and like the gravity of what these situations do to you. So I feel like with this sort of situation, it's sadly so common and relatable that I bet in like the scope of her life, this is such a small interaction, which is sad, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. you should never yeah. be discounted because of your gender uh, or because of the color of your skin. And yet for people of color, this is such a common thread in our mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, Malia, that we talked about after we read this, because I mean, if we go back to, you know, the the passage that we read at the very beginning with Rebecca Solnit saying, this is what happened to me. 
And she's saying that as a white woman, that happens to her all the time, so much so that she wrote this this essay and, you know, wrote this book about it. And so, but one thing that you said to me, I think, Malia, is that after we both finished the book and we were kind of talking about like, okay, what were some of the main things that you said? There's really not much intersectional awareness. So the fact that you and I just talked about it, that doesn't appear in the essay at all or in the book, right? Am I understanding that 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 was your impression like upon your first read? This is very much my impression. And it it actually made me a little bit uncomfortable because she – she almost sets herself up as as someone somewhat of an authoritative figure on the topic, but mm-hmm. then never quite explores it uh, or looks at it from the whole perspective. We're kind of as the reader led to believe that like because she's a journalist, she she knows about these things. But for me, that that was just a really huge oversight. There was a real lack of intersectional discussion. And so, in fact, there was one part in particular to quote from the book where she says, There are so many forms of female non-existence. Early in the war in Afghanistan, the New York Times Sunday Magazine ran a cover story on the country. The big image at the head of the story was supposed to show a family, but I only saw a man and children until I realized with astonishment that what I had taken for drapery or furniture was a fully veiled woman. She has disappeared from the view, and whatever all the arguments about veils or burqas, they make people literally disappear. When I read that, (laughs) I winced. Because it mm-hmm. just felt like such a ignorant, maybe ignorant or, comment, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not to say that. It, I guess the point is, is like, and I feel like this because so much of just my own like personal professional work is talking about like global music or global voices and how their their voices are validated and are important because so much of Western pedagogy in the United States has been and in the world and in Western. Um, civilization has been like one specific sound. And so my thesis a lot in the education that I do is to say that these cultures have been singing this way for thousands of years. Who are we to invalidate the sounds and the things that they do? That there's much more commonality and overlap than we think if we just kind of look at it. And that's what I felt like when I was reading this book is that there wasn't a whole lot of exploration in why those things happen or explaining maybe the movements of women in those organizations and what they're doing. And also it made me think of Melinda Gates's book where she talks a lot about exploring options within cultures uh, mm. that make sense for them as mm-hmm. opposed to saying, these are my opinions as a you know white woman in America on what I think other cultures should be doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I winced too at that part. Now that you brought it up, I remember reading that and going, "Oh, yikes!" I, I I didn't get the sense, like you said, Melinda Gates is white, and but you get the sense that she's really immersed herself in different cultural contexts and studied it, and and like amplified and highlighted other voices rather than just kind of not doing that research and then making kind of a judgmental commentary on it, right? And to talk about the veil, the headscarf, I mean, there are a lot of people who are talking about that, and we've mentioned it on other episodes, but that's really a a conversation that people are having. And I think of, you know, Malala Yousafzai, for example, who's literally like the worldwide icon of women's sovereignty, right? And Malala chooses to wear a hijab. And then on the other side, there's the Iranian activist Masih Alinejad. I've been following her for a few years, and she chooses not to wear the veil, and she's in exile from Iran for her own safety and 
fighting the government, which because the government is forcing women to be covered. So obviously, the issue is about women's autonomy and about their ability to make their own choices. And I, it, I just don't feel like it's ever. Well, I was going to say I don't feel like it. It's a Western and a non-Muslim woman's job or place to judge, <laughs> anyway. And the the whole issue issue is around sovereignty and autonomy and and realizing that women can make really smart and good informed choices for themselves, right? Absolutely. I think that's that's the thing for me is like going back to this conversation that I had with this guy. He has had experiences now where he is really passionate about making sure that we look at things from the perspective of the marginalized. Hmm. And that is very admirable. Wait I a think, second. Th- this is the guy who kept talking over yes. you. But here's <laughs> now here but here's the thing. And th- this comes this comes from like my perspective as well. Like just because I'm a person of color and a woman does not mean like I don't hold rights to like what it's feel it feels like to be marginalized in every circumstance, right? Sure. I'm not well. part of the LGBTQIA movement. Like I'm not there's certain like marginalized groups that I'm not a part of, so I can't speak to like that experience. And I think that's where it is for me is kind of like knowing the difference between being an ally and then getting in front of the yes. message and being like, I'm going to tell you what my, what I think about these things rather than me saying, rather than him saying to me, what has been your experience with mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Because I can give you a million. <laughs> I can mm-hmm. tell you right. about like being asked in hallways, like what my race and ethnicity is because at the casting table, we're not supposed to talk about it. So mm. like I can tell you story after story after story of like these kind of instances and but that is the that is the issue. It's not that they're an ally. It's not that they they aren't an ally. It's the it's getting in front of the message and thinking like that your experience as someone who hasn't experienced this is somehow an authority figure to tell other people what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. I kind of right. think of this with men generally, and like when men feel like a really strong responsibility to tell women what their female experience should be, like what mm-hmm. your experience as a mother should be, how you should feel, how how your relationship should look. I'm like, that's – if you want to have an opinion on it, okay. But like you'll never – it's the same way that I would feel if I was trying to tell, you know, lecture a bunch of men on what their experience should be as fathers. What, what do I really know about that? Absolutely right. nothing other than right. observation. Right. My, my sister-in-law says that she has a sister who whenever – <laughs> there's a there is a patriarch in in that like he is literally the grandpa so like the patriarch of the family and he has all kinds of opinions on every topic and and including women's issues and women's reproduction and motherhood and this and that and she has a very bold sister-in-law that says no uterus no opinion <laughs> like <laughs> about 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 topics not like in general, but about topics that have to do with uteruses. Like <laughs> that's appropriate, right? So anyway. Yeah, it's like it's like you could have an opinion about it, but it doesn't mean that your opinion matters more than someone who's experiencing it. It certainly does not. Yes. I yeah. Agreed. Okay, awesome. What were some other parts for you from the essay or from the whole anthology that kind of stood out to you, Malia? So I think something that I noted in here, which I know you've talked about this in other other podcasts, which is like the term feminist and maybe why it's problematic to contemporary women. And I was mm. thinking about this because I have a neighbor who is German and I asked her, do you view yourself as a feminist? Like the term, do you call yourself that? And her reaction was to say no. And that surprised me because she, the like her, her 
opinions on things are very what you would figure in line are feminist. But for her, she's like, to me, in like Germany or German culture, like the perception of what we see of that does not – it doesn't resonate with me mm-hmm. because it's this idea of like being brash or out there or like topless, like parading around. Um, and so it was interesting just to hear her perspective. And I think also one of the things that I noted with you was like looking at a poll of like younger women and how they don't like the term because one of the main factors is this oversight of women of color, trans women, women across the class spectrum, women with disabilities, or like focusing specifically on like white, middle, upper class women. So how this relates to me in the in the whole anthology is I just felt like over and over again that this was her experience and that is very, very valid. It just felt like it it also made a lot of judgment calls for other groups, but without really giving them the chance to like have air. It was kind of like her mm-hmm. perspective as an outsider on those things mm-hmm. as opposed to here is their experience. And and they made me think I had this interaction with a friend who works – her name's Corinne Rice Graycloud, and she works a lot in tribal communities. And one of the things that she works on is trafficking and sexual assault. And it made me think of she had an instance where there was this public figure who was using her platform to talk about Native women. And there were some people who were upset because they were like, why aren't you turning your voice to women who are on the front lines doing this kind of work all the time? And her reaction to that was, I can practice grace and allow allow the idea that like even though it would be nice or ideal if she kind of circled in people from these organizations that it's still giving opportunity to get this out there. And so that that for me then ties back to my whole experience with this guy, which is like I'm not a cancel culture kind of person. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a calling in kind of person. So I think the idea is like allowing for grace and being like it wasn't the best conversation about diversity, equity and inclusion. And so how can we going forward, like what can we do rather than being like, that's over, you're canceled, Mm -hmm. the end. But that – so that is something for me like just overall in the book that I feel like you can take away reading like Rebecca Solnit's perspective and her experiences as a woman as opposed to like generally. And we talked about this too, right, that this book is kind of at this point kind of dated, isn't it, Mm -hmm, over a decade mm -hmm. old? Yeah. Not yet. I think it was 2014. Was it? Okay. Yeah, but still. There's just a lot that's happened, I think, in the women's movement in that time period. For sure. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it is interesting because it does kind of hark back to earlier episodes that we've done where Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, like mind-blowing and world-changing and so important. But the very first thing that we talked about on that episode was that she didn't mention women of color at all in that whole groundbreaking important it became almost a bible of the feminist movement which is probably why like you said i mean a lot of women of color are not comfortable with the word feminist or i mean even your german friend right it became really associated with a very particular type of second wave all white um heterosexual upper class women. And so it leaves too many people out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was, I guess it is kind of surprising though. I just feel like by 2014, that ground had already been covered by many, many voices. So it's kind of surprising. And like you said, disappointing that it it didn't, it wasn't more aware and more inclusive, but I love, 
I love your approach. I mean, you and I are really aligned on this, the calling in versus calling out. Can I ask you like a specific question for listeners who are thinking, like maybe feeling worried about like, oh, I don't want to make that same mistake, trying to be an ally like this man was that you had this conversation with and and have somebody in the, you know, in the conversation leave and think like, that person totally talked over me. Like, so what would be a solution? Because you just said like, you're all about kind of forging ahead and creating, you know, positivity in the future and like, let's just do better next time. So what would you say that guy could have done differently that would have felt more inclusive to you? So I can tell you an experience just with me recently with the the Black Lives Matter movement of just like asking friends, like, what can I do that's tangible? Like, how can mm-hmm. I be of help? So I feel like I'm always asking these questions. I think that's number one is like asking questions rather than just assuming, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a black American. I'll never know what that's like, but I know what it's like to be a woman of color. I know what it's like to have those experiences. And so what that does is it gives me empathy. So I think, mm-hmm. I think that's the starting point is like ask questions. Don't make it someone else's job to like educate you on the issues, but ask questions of like, what can I tangibly do to help? And then the other thing too, is just always remember, like, I feel like this is just generally like, if it's not your experience, do you really have to speak authoritatively about it? Yeah, or can no. you ask questions? Like, don't you think Americans would <laughs> – right. not Americans, like worldwide. I think we would do a lot better if we were willing to ask questions first mm-hmm. and not just to respond. But so we can really just generally be like, I don't understand this. Can you explain to me what this means to you? Mm-hmm. Because so many of these opinions I think are are forged in fear and and that's why I say, like, I want to speak to the person that's like, it's always about color. And and to recognize that, like, I understand your fatigue with it, kind of like hearkening back to your episode with Eric of like, mm-hmm. yeah, I get it. Like, we hear these things all the time and it feels kind of like, oh, do we really does we really have to make it about feminism? But like, that's what it is. Like, whether or not you're fatigued about it, it's just a reality. So maybe like sit with the uncomfortableness of that and think, what can I do to help the problem and to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. For sure. Another line that really stuck with me and maybe not in the way that the writer intended was the line, violence doesn't have a race, a class, a religion, or a nationality, but it does have a gender. That's such a powerful statement. And when I read it, I was like, yes, yes. But then I sat with it a little bit and was like, no. <laughs> Mm, tell me about that. Interesting. There's just some parts to this that are problematic. And I think that, you know, I don't think this is a trauma contest to debate like who has the most trauma. But I, th- I think there are some oversights into this statement. While it's true that women experience a huge amount of violence at the hands of men, it's important to know, as she does in the book, that most men are killed by other men. So then we have to kind of look at this from a holistic perspective and say, so in regards to violence against women, is this a feature of them being women? Is it a power differential? Is it because men historically are in positions of power in marriages? Is this a biology thing, nature versus versus nurture? I just think there are so many threads that we can follow with this and kind of look at the, the whole picture. And I just felt like some of Solnit's explanations were really moving, but overly simplistic. Uh, I think I said that previously that I just felt like it wanted to be kind of like 
neatly tied up in an essay form, but because it was in a book, maybe I was expecting too much of it. I was like, no, mm. talk about this more. I just think that there's there's just a lot to this because the truth is there are many factors that impact why women have so many violent interactions with men. So I looked up the statistics because I just wanted to know just generally what's out there. So I went to the World Health Organization and this is what they said. A 2018 analysis of the prevalence of data from 2000 to 2018 across 161 countries and areas conducted by the World Health Organization on behalf of the UN Interagency Working Group on Violence Against Women found that worldwide, nearly one in three or 30% of women have been subjected to physical and sexual violence by an intimate partner or non-partner sexual violence or both. So I was curious how these statistics compared to same-sex intimate partner violence because that's kind of something – did you catch that in the book where it almost felt like she was saying, in these interactions, this doesn't happen? Did you pick that Uh, up? I don't remember having that stand out to me, but that's really interesting. (laughs) Kind of throwing that on you. Maybe that's incorrect. I'm willing to No, no, no. I'm sure no, no, I'm sure I'm sure you're right. Go on. (laughs) But but I was curious how that just compared. And so I went and looked at at the research on that and it said uh, from this study that I found that was kind of looking at generally all of these studies that have been done. Many studies have revealed that the existence of intimate partner violence, IPV, among lesbian and gay couples, and its incidence is comparable to or higher than that among heterosexual couples. So there's a lot to take away from this, which is that like lesbian, gay, bisexual, intimate partner violence hasn't been as well researched as heterosexual IPV. So there could be like a huge differential there. But there is growing empirical research. And the researchers so far have made reasonable inferences that there are lesbian partnerships that experience a comparable amount of violence, at least according to what we have. So where does that leave us with the hypothesis that violence against women by men is a male problem? What are your thoughts? We are going to talk about this. It's super important and really, really interesting. We already have talked about gender-based violence on some of our other episodes as well. As you know, um, most notably, the episode that was about the UN declaration of the elimination of violence toward women. And that, but that really does enrich the conversation to bring in uh, data from same sex couples, right? Because that's a really important comparison point. And so it's fascinating that, that lesbian partnerships experience so much violence too. So for me, as I'm thinking about it, I think, so we have men perpetrate violence against other men in partnerships and women perpetrate violence against other women in partnerships. But I suppose that being because heterosexual partnerships do make up a majority of all partnerships worldwide, there is a much higher instance of men hurting women definitely than women hurting men. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so we talked about this on our, um, our episode on that UN declaration. There's just horrifyingly high rates of women being raped and murdered by men. Um, And especially, you know, uh, additionally marginalized groups like Native American women in our own country right now who are experiencing an epidemic of missing and battered and murdered women. And that that is happening at the hands of men. So, Which she does know in the book when she talks about men going to tribal nations and and knowing that they're not going to be prosecuted. That's right. 
That's right, because these are the most vulnerable women. I mean, among the most vulnerable women, and and that to to read, yes, I do remember that because that to read that that was happening in 2014 and that it's the same or worse now was just so disheartening. Um, but we are going to talk about this in a future episode too, because I'm not prepared with all of the study because I haven't you know um, done that episode yet. But you're, I totally agree with your questions um, that it can't be driven solely by maleness, right? Because in in Denmark, which I do know is the country with the lowest gender-based violence, those are men just like men all over the world, right? Like those are just as much men as, you know, the Taliban fighters in Afghanistan um, can are I, men. Can I talk yes. about that? <laughs> yes. This yes. is a totally random aside, but when we went to Denmark... I kept looking at my husband and I was like, these men are beautiful. That's all I want to say is that they are just like hulking Viking men and I think yes. that they're beautiful. So I'm like, if those men can have the lowest gender-based violence as these just like brawny, I'm generalizing, but like brawny no, men, right. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Come on. <laughs> no, it's true. These are not, these are not weak. Um, like I think people's, and we are going to talk about this actually a lot on um, our episode on the book For the Love of Men, From Toxic to a More Mindful Masculinity by Liz Plank. That's coming up in a few weeks. And we do talk about that. And men's fear of losing their masculinity if they become less dominant, you know what I mean? Less dominator, I guess, Mm -hmm. if they become less patriarchal and less authoritative. And yeah, you just point to those those honks in Scandinavia and how they're like <laughs> I just like literally I just remember just riding around men. on bikes and just being like these are beautiful people these are such beautiful people and my yeah. husband's like yeah yeah I hear it so they yeah. are and and strong it doesn't create um it, you don't need to lose masculinity just to become you know a whole less um aggressive man, right? I mean, it's it's proof. Anyway, but yes, to your point, um, gender-based violence is is complicated. And on that future episode on For the Love of Men, we're going to talk about testosterone and kind of the latest studies that are being done. So super important questions, and I wish I were more prepared to answer them right now, but we'll get to them in a little bit. Okay. One part for me from... I guess from the first essay, really, the the one that's titled Men Explain Things to Me, is I do want to talk about the word mansplaining, which we said we were going to get to. So Solnit didn't write that word. It's not, it's not in her essay. It's just that the essay inspired it. And Solnit says she doesn't love the word. And I I do have mixed feelings about it. I don't I don't actually use it. I don't think. Now I'm going to have listeners say, yes, you did use it in this episode or something. I don't know. I don't think I use it. I try not to. Certainly after doing this episode, I I, I guess the, the short version of this conversation is that it's not a word that I want to use, but let's get, let's get to that a little at a time. That first story that she told, I really definitely could relate to. I've definitely been on the receiving end of very patronizing treatment that I really feel like I would not have been getting if I were a man. For example, there was a fellow student in one of my classes a little while ago who would just constantly correct the women in the class. And there was, I I remember this certain time that the professor asked a question. I had just been listening to NPR in the car on the way to class and had heard the answer to that question that the professor asked. So I answered it 
knowing the answer. It had been like literally 15 minutes earlier before I parked and walked into class. And this man, and it's not just the content, it's the tone too for me. It wasn't because it wasn't like, oh, really? I heard this other thing. No, it was like, no, that's not right. It's this. And it's so like blindsided me too that I was like, oh, kind of like Solnit says, like, wait, maybe I am wrong. And he took the reins away and then he started talking and I just sat there like with this heat in my chest like that. First of all, he's wrong. Also, that was so rude. And why does he think automatically that he knows better than I do? He was just another student in the class. He wasn't a professor. But then I felt like I would seem like a jerk if I raised my hand and was like, actually, you're wrong. Like Mm -hmm. it just felt immature. But then I thought I don't like feeling walked over like that. I just hate being put in that position. And so I I feel like earlier in my life, I probably would have just said nothing and then stewed about it for a while and been been mad for the rest of the day or whatever. But I just thought, you know what? I'm going to be really polite, but I think he needs to be shown that that's not polite behavior and that I don't accept that kind of behavior. So I actually did raise my hand and just say, actually, you know, I looked it up on my phone discreetly just to make sure I was right. And I was, I just heard it. And so I did, (laughs) I was really nice about it, but I did make a correction and, and just, I mean, and also he had misled the whole class and the professor didn't know because he had asked the question. In any case, I really don't think, well, I did observe with that particular person, he did that more to women than he did to the other men in the class, though he did do it to the other men. Um, but here's the thing. I have totally seen women do this exact behavior too, right? Mm-hmm. Including, I must say, Malia, I was such a know-it-all when I was a kid, like so bad, really kind of insufferable. I was such an explainer. I assumed I knew things. I was legitimately like really bossy. I really was. And which kind of brings me to the word bossy because I think it's I think it's relevant because that's kind of like the gendered word on the girl side. There's like the mansplaining for men and and bossy is uh, is kind of similar. And in fact, Cheryl Sandberg started an initiative specifically to to get people to stop saying that word because the word is almost always only applied to girls. So if like a boy and a girl exhibit identical confidence and the ability to direct the action and kind of give assignments to people, the boy is likely to be called a leader while the girl is likely to be called bossy. And bossy's, as we all know, not a positive term. So I found an article on Psychology Today, which was written by a Wharton professor, Dr. Adam Grant, and I thought this was really interesting. He says, quote, to make sense of bossiness, we need to tease apart two fundamental aspects of social hierarchy that are often lumped together, power and status. Power lies in holding a formal position of authority or controlling important resources. Status involves being respected or admired. And this is continuing this quote. He says, we react very differently when power is exercised by high status and low status people. When people with high status also possess power, we perceive them as dominant, but also warm. We hold them in high regard, so we're willing to follow their commands. When the same commands come from people who lack status, we judge them as dominant and cold. Since they haven't earned our respect, we feel they don't have the right to tell us what to do. 
When young women get called bossy, it's often because they're trying to exercise power without status. Mm. It's not a problem that they're being dominant. The backlash arises because they're overstepping their perceived status. That's the end of the quote. So this kind of explains why we perceive the same behavior in boys and girls so differently, because in a patriarchal culture, boys have inherent status just based on being boys. And boys are encouraged to be confident and to speak with authority, right? To speak confidently. And in a patriarchal culture, girls have to work much harder to earn that status because their default state is to not have status based on their gender. And boys just get that bump in status just by birthright. And actually, there's a part in Solnit's essay, she says, quote, after my book Wanderlust came out in 2000, I found myself better able to resist being bullied out of my own perceptions and interpretations. On two occasions around that time, I objected to the behavior of a man only to be told that the incidents hadn't happened at all, as I said, that I was subjective, delusional, overwrought, dishonest, in a nutshell, female. Most of my life, I would have doubted myself and backed down. Having public standing as a writer of history helped me stand my ground. But few women get that boost, and billions of women must be out there on this 7 billion person planet being told that they are not reliable witnesses to their own lives. That's the end of her quote. So Solnit, being a woman, she didn't have status, but she gained status because she was a published author. And so I thought that was just a super useful framework to kind of tease out some of the factors that are at play there. And so my last thought about that is just, I feel like if, you know, if, if anybody, regardless of gender, is going to be a leader, there are best practices for leaders, all leaders. And that's to be, you know, a good listener and not arrogantly just jump in and explain things with the assumption that you know more than other people, right? When, when you might not. And to not be an authoritarian dictator because nobody likes that behavior in anyone. So it's much better to listen and encourage others to shine and amplify others' talents, no matter the gender. And it's also super, of course, important for us to check our biases because we all absorb them. And so we need to make sure that we don't excuse the poor behavior in boys or even frame them as strengths, which is one of the tendencies in patriarchy and then also punish girls for the, the same behaviors, which are actually just, you know, sometimes we punish girls for even the positive leadership behaviors. So those were my thoughts on that section. What did you, what did you think about that, Malia? Either like that section or the word mansplaining, what do you think? So I have a couple of different thoughts. I mean, you, you started that last part about like, don't, don't excuse poor behaviors in boys or even frame them as strengths and punish girls for leadership behaviors. I think that's one of the things that increasingly why when we attach dominator models to gender, it becomes like a cage that we put around mm. people. Because I see this just with my husband and with my son where these perceptions of like how they should be hurt them just as much as they hurt me and my daughter. Mm -hmm. So I think that even if you're not fully down with this feminist thing or like patriarchy, look at how just these these biases that we have, how they really limit what people feel like they could or should be doing. Uh, and that's just my plea to people is like, just look at that, even if you're not. And I think that is, that's kind of my whole thing with this whole 
anthology. There were a lot of things in here that I liked. And then there was a lot of things that I was like, hmm, I come to a different conclusion on that. And I think that just generally, like you can you can agree to certain things and also disagree in the way that they're going about it. You can disagree with like the mode of how we get to the solution. And I think that's how we can better validate these kind of ideas. Same with mansplaining, because I, I totally relate to the same thing of like men, you know, saying things to me and me feeling like, oh, you're mansplaining to me. But I think the critical thing here is to understand intent, which is this is where it gets tricky, right? Because we we can't really know intent. We're just kind of judging based off of our like best guesses, practice, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm always really cautious at like assuming intent. And I think what comes down to this for me is condescension. Like I think any time that you're speaking with condescension, it's pretty clear what is behind this. And I do, I do think it's worth noting that like, I think that there is a lot of cultural things that relate to this. Like I think generally boys in our wider culture are taught to be tough and strong and, and confident. And I do think that girls are, while that is changing, I still think that girls are often being framed to, you know, be pleasing to not be so assertive that it's off-putting. Like I totally remember that all through like high school and college being like, be assertive, but not too much. Cause I remember when mm-hmm. I was too assertive, it was like too threatening to boys. Like they did. And I actually, <laughs> I remember a guy in college being like, Malia, guys really like it if like you need them and like you don't need men. And I remember being like, you're mm-hmm. dang right. I don't need men. Like I don't <laughs> need a guy to do that for me. And so I mm-hmm. think that this is where like we get that, that overlap. Right. Cause like, it's the same problem. If, if, if my need for you is that I need you to protect me rather than I need you to be a partner with me, then it is true. There is a mismatch there. Men are going to feel like, well, this is what I feel like I, I'm supposed to bring to the table. And if I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think that's right, I'm not recognizing that that's like a wider cultural issue. Does that make sense? Yep. 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 It sure does. So yeah. I think that this is where like the term mansplaining is just really problematic generally because I feel like it – while it's like really easy to use and it totally makes sense to me, it I think it too often it just silences the voices of of men who are just speaking up, who we might not even mm-hmm. realize that for them that's a hard thing. Like right. think of all the introverted True. men that like that might be a really a really challenging thing for them to to state their opinion. And so if you're looking at them and you're like, I disagree with you, you're mansplaining me, you're just doing to them what you don't want done to you. So I think condescension here is like really the clear key indicator of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that the term, even if it's true, to be honest, even if like in the class, in the, in the example that I just used, that was very clear that that is what was happening, that he did assume that he knew better than me. It just was quite clear that it was a gender based thing. Although he did correct other men that he just kind of was like, it was a very dominator model personality (laughs) that that he kind of that he was arrogant and that he was um condescending but i do tend to also like you to i mean i <laughs> i do this thing where i i try to look at everybody even especially when they're annoying me and imagine what they looked like when they were like 2 or 3 years old <laughs> and just see the like the humanity in them right and to see i loved that you just said that think of all the introverted boys and men, and we don't know what is going on inside of their heads. And they may be accidentally doing something they, and they don't even realize. And so to just punch him in the face. And I do think the term 
mansplaining is kind of a punch in the face. So even if it's true, it's not a useful term in calling in, like you said. It's a very, it's kind of an aggressive accusatory word. So I don't know that it's a super useful term. Well, why can't we call it the behavior? Why can't we? I just just interrupted you. I literally just interrupted you. So you can call that woman-splaining. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, like, why can't we call it the behavior? Why can't I be like, right. you're being condescending? Why why, exactly. why are you being condescending? Can you not say this to right. me in a way that is like, you know, inviting discussion as opposed to like ending it based on your authority? I think right. that's, that's the thing. We're not saying don't, you know, don't like, call it out. Light some, you know, lavender and be like, it is fine. Whatever <laughs> it is. No, we're like literally just saying like, if you don't want to be discriminated based on your gender – my tools are to not turn around and use those same tools against you. Yes, I love that. And exactly. And I guess that's what we were trying to get at with the mansplaining being being connected to the word bossy, right? Don't say bossy either cuz that is a gendered female term at least it's become that in our culture. So instead of saying bossy, say actually you just yeah, exactly. You just talked over that person. Did you notice that you are you're not you know, inviting anybody else's input, maybe let somebody else talk because those are best practices for everybody. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end, Malia. That was a great conversation. I am so, so happy that you were willing to do another text with me and read this and and discuss it today on the episode. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to bother you to come back again. So Please, please, <laughs> as many times as you can. I, we would love it. You're fantastic. Thanks, Malia. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will read Anne-Marie Slaughter's book, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, published in 2015. Listeners might remember an article in The Atlantic in 2012, which was called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. I remember reading it right when it came out, and it caused a firestorm among my friends. Um, I had full-time mom friends who were feeling very validated about their choices to stay home and not work outside the home at all. Mostly, I would say my working mom friends felt a little betrayed for trying to have it all. And so for her to say why women still can't have it all was was pretty hard and caused a lot of conversation. Also, working mom friends who were struggling to make ends meet kind of felt ignored and that it was a little bit of an elitist perspective and not super inclusive. But it was one of the most read Atlantic articles of all time. That article is actually a great place to start in preparation for next week's discussion. If you want to buy the book, which I highly recommend, just know that Anne-Marie Slaughter took that first article in 2012 and she refined her arguments a lot and responded to her critics and really, I think, learned a lot, added a bunch of data for, for the book version. And it's also a really great counterpoint to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. So this book is going to kind of capture and represent this discussion among women kind of in the mid-2000-teens. So check out Anne-Marie Slaughter's book, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. And then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.